The Flight Deck is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you to the donors who sustain the Museum of Flight. To support this podcast and the museum's other educational initiatives, visit museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. We're three episodes away from the end of this season of the podcast, which focuses on LGBTQ plus stories in aerospace. I thought it would be a great opportunity to pause and step back a little. We are an air and space museum. Now, usually we talk a lot about the air and space part. Today, we're spending time on the museum part. We're a place where history is presented and interpreted, and presenting and interpreting stories of LGBTQ plus people in aerospace, or frankly, people from any traditionally marginalized community, brings with it unique challenges for the people doing the interpreting. Isaac Fellman and Tony Pankush are two people in the museum and archives world who have spent a lot of time bringing LGBTQ plus stories to the public. And they joined me today to consider a series of case studies, people in aviation and space history whose stories have much more to say than what typically gets recorded on museum walls. Today, I am joined by two excellent special guests, and I would like to have them introduce themselves. So first joining us from the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco is Isaac Fellman. Isaac, welcome to the Flight Deck. Hi, thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm Isaac. I am the Managing Reference Archivist at the GLBT Historical Society. And uh, my job is primarily to work with researchers and the public and really provide a link between the archives and the outside world. And you have some stuff relating to Leonard Matlovich, uh, a very famous gay Air Force veteran, am I correct? We do, yeah. We have his uh, his collection. It's really extensive. All of his correspondence with uh, his professional correspondence, and also with admirers, his uniform. We we have we have a big trunk that we've never looked in. Um, I, I assume it's empty, and it's what the collection came in. But uh, yeah, it, we we have enough to really give you a sense of the man. And also, that collection is going to be digitized soon, so I'll be oh. able to distribute it next year. Excellent. And he has an extensive oral history that is digitized already, too. And we're also joined today by Tony Pankush from the Cummings Center for the History of Psychology. Hello. Uh, delighted to be here. Uh, yes, I'm Tony. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I work at the Cummings Center for the History of Psychology, which is in Akron, Ohio. We're home to the National Museum of Psychology. Uh, my role there, I wear several hats, uh, marketing, social media, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also uh, designing exhibits as well. Uh, I also currently co-chair the American Alliance of Museums Task Force for Transgender Inclusion, which seeks to promote trans inclusion in museums through resource development, uh, community building, and general advocacy. Well, thank you both for joining me today. 
Now, this podcast episode is going to be a bit of a, a meta discussion about how we talk about history. We are an air and space museum, and a lot of times on the podcast here, we've focused on the air and space part, not so much on the museum part, right? The That, like I said, the meta conversation about how we interpret and present information in a museum context. And listeners have probably picked up over the course of this podcast season that it can be really tricky to find and to talk about LGBTQ plus people in aerospace for a, a whole variety of reasons. And, and Tony and Isaac have done a lot of work in this space. So I'm really glad that you're here to share your insight. So I thought we would approach this by looking at some case studies, some, some individuals in aviation and space history whose stories we can use to kind of learn from and, and reach into some of these wider topics. So, uh, like, for example, with the, with the story of Sally Ride, a lot of people know, I hope everybody knows, she's the first American woman to go to space. It's less well known that it, she's the first known LGBTQ plus astronaut. And this, this, I think, is a really interesting way to, to look at the question of how, when we go back into the historical record, how do we balance using modern labels uh, with really respecting the world that people lived in? So, like, someone like Sally Ride, right, during her life, she was never out publicly. In, her, in the biography that came out about her, the comprehensive biography, that came out about her shortly after she died. It's it's made clear that one of the reasons she didn't come out is she was worried about all all her work being undermined, right? Her her work with Sally Ride Science being kind of taken away. Uh, but in her obituary, it came out that she had been in a relationship with a female partner for decades. So it seems like a great place to start. You know, what do we do with a story like this? Someone who existed in, in the closet for the most part, as far as the public was concerned, uh, is it is it kind of uncouth <laughs> to go back and try to pull them out of that closet? And what sort of language is appropriate to use when we're talking about people like Sally? See, here's where I feel like there is a lot of importance, though, in understanding the person through those who were genuinely close to them, right? So I think that in speaking to, say, Sally Ride's partner, right, in speaking to, you know, family can be tricky, right? There's always this sort of question of how accepting family is. But close family, intimate friends, I feel like that is a really great place to start when you're questioning about, should I even be talking about this, right? If a person was not out in their life, to get a sense of whether or not it is appropriate to discuss them in this context, right? Um, and in general, I do sort of broadly speaking, lean more toward the sort of open interpretation of history based on what we do know. While individuals do, of course, have the right to keep their private lives private, I think we also do all have to acknowledge as well that none of us can maintain total control over the details of our lives after we die, right? And so in the case of someone like Sally Ride, who we do seem to have indications from those who were close to her, at least in my understanding of this, that there was an openness or a willingness to share this detail about her life towards the end of her life. It feels very appropriate to me to discuss that history. Um, and in general, you know, I think that one of the things that is so powerful about her story 
is how it does add this piece of LGBTQ representation and identity to this famous story of of space exploration and astronauts. I mean, so is it appropriate to say that Sally Ride was, you know, the first lesbian astronaut? That feels a little ethically questionable, but I do also think that we can apply a broader label like queer or a broader label like sort of the sort of LGBTQ umbrella to this story. And if nothing else, we can be open about the fact that like we ourselves aren't entirely sure how to do this, right? You know, I think that we need to make ourselves visible as interpreters of the historical record as we have it. Yeah, I, I think that our own visibility as interpreters is very important. It's just absolutely central to doing history in an ethical way. Uh, when I read biographies, um, amateur, professional, and academic of historical figures who were ambiguously queer or whose queerness was apparent, but it's not obvious how to map their lives onto contemporary categories. I'm just always struck by how much better the authors seem to do when they insert themselves into the story, when they are frank about what they want to see and how that influences what they see, but also the fact that, you know, they they have an in-group recognition of some of the vibes and tropes that they're picking up in this person's life. Sometimes intuition is a very valid way to do history, as long as we are frank about who is doing the intuiting. You know, I think this is the importance of having sort of LGBTQ folks working in the fields of history and museums and archives. I think the importance of that is that there is there is a coding that we all do in terms of how we talk about our lives. You know, there's there's an element of code switching in terms of how we talk about the queer community, right? Yeah. Queer folks are inherently going to pick up on things that folks who do not have that experience don't necessarily pick up on. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I am entirely guilty of looking at a piece of art or historical story story that is not inherently gay and seeing some sort of queerness to it, right? Seeing some sort of gayness to it. Does that mean that that piece of media or that story is actually queer? Not necessarily, but there is validity to our community's ability to recognize ourselves in stories, in narratives, in pieces of media and objects. And if listeners want to dive into that more, I talked about that in a, one of the previous episodes in this miniseries with uh, Dr. Judy Tsuchun Wu about Mom Chung, who we might talk about a little bit later in, in this episode too, but she really talked about that. Um, it, it's it's interesting. Like it becomes a line, right? Where where is it appropriate? Where isn't it? Well, first of all, so this this brings up an interesting point that I had been talking about with someone recently about how museum, like an author, you know who wrote the book, you know who directed the documentary, museum exhibits outside of maybe art exhibits, aren't signed, quote unquote. Like they're kind of anonymously presented. Um, we we have a, an exhibits team that puts it together and I'm sure they would say that there's no one person who is responsible for the content. But at the same time, there's usually someone whose interpretive lens is, is the overall person. I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know if people should sign exhibits because they're also always in flux, unlike a book, which is kind of you know, written and then maybe revised, but any thoughts on that? 
It's a thing that I really appreciate about our work at GLBT. Um, as a historical society, we have both a large archives and what is currently a small museum, although we're, we're dreaming bigger than that um, for the future. Um, all of our museum exhibits actually are signed because they are curated by community curators with the, with the assistance of professionals who uh, sort of help them work through the technicalities of planning an exhibit. So uh, really on the wall next to everything that we do, there is a note, you know, Isaac Fellman from GLBT, who is of, you know, these various community experiences himself worked on this. And, um, you know, I don't think that that works for every exhibit. I, I think that sometimes that Sometimes that anonymity of speech really works in an exhibit's favor because it, um, you know, it, it allows it allows you to freely project. It's sort of like a protagonist in a video game who doesn't speak, so that you can really see through their eyes and experience what they're experiencing without mediation. But you know, ultimately, um, I, I could I could do with a little bit more frankness in the museum world. Um, similar to what we do about who is speaking and why and in what context. Yeah, I think the the why and in what context is what's really very important to me. I mean, we we in my museum, we run a museums and archives certificate program with a local university. And so very often students are designing our exhibits and contributing interpretive content. And we're very careful about, you know, actually including those students' names, right? Like we want to give credit, just like you were saying, Isaac, with uh, community partners, um, but we don't, we know, we don't dive into their experiences, their identities in that way. And I do think that there are times when that might be jarring to sort of have someone sort of trying to sign off and put a positionality statement right for everyone who worked on the exhibit. But I do think that there's a lot of value in explaining just briefly sort of at the opening of an exhibit, why you made some of the decisions that you made, right? I've seen this happen a lot in terms of narratives that are missing from exhibits, right? So when folks are doing an exhibit on a specific topic and they recognize, you know, we are simply not including as many women in this exhibit as we would like to and taking up space at the beginning of the exhibit to acknowledge the fact that they did try to do this and the challenges that they faced in the archives trying to find those stories. Um, additionally, I've seen this actually a few times in terms of trans inclusion in museums. There was an exhibit that I saw recently at the Colorado History uh, Center while I was attending the American Alliance of Museums conference. Um, and it was on uh, Chinese calligraphy uh, by women. Um, and the exhibit took a very expansive view looking at sort of potential individuals who today might identify themselves as trans or who we might consider to be of trans experience and actually explained the sort of logistical choices that they made in why they used the language they used and why they included the narratives that they included. And I think that that was really powerful and it set an expectation going into the exhibit. Now, mind you, we all know statistics on, you know, the amount of reading that people do in museum exhibits. We're not, <laughs> I can't guarantee that folks are going to read the carefully thought out explanation that you include at the start of your exhibit, but I do think it's a really good practice for us to get into. They won't read it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> us museum nerds will. We will, yes. You know, in museum world, we are always wrestling with sort of the question of, uh, neutrality. And, uh, you know, it, we, there's a widespread recognition that neutrality in the ways that we tell historical stories is an absolute fiction and something that we shouldn't aim for. But it's still, I think, an open question about what we should do instead. And 
how we should uh, how we should acknowledge our own non neutralness while also giving the the visitor something that doesn't feel like they're stepping into somebody else's brain, um, but you know instead are interpreting with their with their own brain. It's uh, it's a very complicated balance, and uh, sometimes I'm glad that I'm an archivist uh, assisting people in research and not a curator presenting the information that I find. I do think that is a strength that museums and also archives as well have that, say, a history book doesn't have, though, right? You can, because there is a tangible aspect to it, right? A museum exhibit is typically going to have some degree of artifacts and documents. And I think that when we do sort of preempt an exhibit or display with our own sort of positionality or our methods, there is an inherent ability that any museum visitor has to see the thing that we are interpreting and walk away with their own interpretation, right? And I think that that is a really powerful thing that museums can and should leverage in terms of, as you said, not just giving someone a window into your own brain, but a tangible historical reality of some sort. Absolutely. That's why I really appreciate museums, the, the trend right now of asking questions as opposed to just presenting things, because it's not about telling people what to think. I don't think any of us here um, are in that business at all. It's, it's about presenting the information and then asking people to internalize it through questioning and, and inquisition on their own. You know, how would, how would you feel? You know, what would this mean to you, you know, if you were in this person's shoes? Absolutely. Um, I want to get back to a topic that um, I think Isaac mentioned, but uh, about kind of that, how we read things into stories. And, and I see that with someone like Josephine Baker. So, f well, actually, I, a follow up question. I'm going to come back to that. But Isaac, you had said that um, museum neutrality is a fiction. And I'm curious, could, could you just talk a little bit more about that, what you mean by that and how visitors might understand that? Because that's, that's a pretty... Um, it's a pretty big discussion in museums right now. Uh, share, just share a little bit more about it. And I, I feel like uh, I'm more conversant with this conversation in archives world, which is, uh, you know, just a slightly alternate dimension from museum world. The cast of characters is different, you know, like uh, <laughs> it's it's museum world prime. It's not museum world original. But certainly <laughs> when, when archivists uh, talk and uh, angst about neutrality, um, I, I just I feel that just for a very long time, our field sort of had this vision that all the archivist does, you know, we are a transparent lens. The history comes into the archives. Uh, we welcome it joyously. We process and arrange it and we show it to people. And we basically don't exist, you know, like we are invisible. We are ghosts. And um, this has, I think, had an effect on how people perceive the world of archives and archivists with that um, that frequent media trope, right, of like somebody finding something that was buried in the archives for 60 years, no one had ever looked at it. And like, meaning, meanwhile, the five archivists who have worked with it intensively are like looking on. So we, we've really, I, I think we really dug ourselves that hole. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it is it is a fiction, of course. It's an illusion. Um, whether people feel comfortable enough to approach us with donations, whether we accept the donations, the amount of attention that we pay to each collection as it comes in, uh, whether we catalog it extensively or leave it for later, uh, even when the archivist in the room, when the visitor is, is here to, to do the work, 
uh, like whether we think to recommend it or are aware of it. All of these things are, are points of absolute non-neutrality. And uh, I think that it's great that our field has finally recognized and started to talk within you know the last the last couple of decades about the fact that we do have perspective and everything that we do has you know not to not to put the pressure on but everything that we do in archives affects in subtle ways what history is going to be available to historians in the future so we we've really got to um we've really got to strive to recognize our own motivations and our own biases so that we can so that we can live up to those ideals in a different way without calling them neutrality instead calling them what would be, what would be a good word i don't know instead of neutrality personality i've i've got nothing <laughs> but um but we're here you know archivists do exist we are not just lenses and the sooner we admit that the happier we and everyone else will be and when you referenced donations earlier you meant uh, donations of like archival material not necessarily like oh, yes. money Sorry. donations oh no problem i wanted to jump in and actually note i so i mentioned that we run a museums and archives certificate program here and just a couple weeks ago i was talking to students uh they were reading archives for all the sort of classic uh jimerson article um, that's basically about this sort of myth of neutrality of an archivist. And it was actually interesting because these were graduate students who were in a museums and archives program. And this was really the first time they had encountered the idea that they were stepping into an inherently political profession. Uh, I think that there is this myth that the archivist is just kind of, you know, making sure that all the stuff that survives continues to survive and we're not really making any choices, right? And we're making choices every single day, just as museums are over in museum world, right? We've got this choice of then, okay, we've got these archives, we have these materials, what is going to be displayed and how are we going to talk about them? And I think, you know, I think that there's a lot of education that might need to be done, um, education about museums and archives in order to change that public perception. And I think that it might also be education that some museum and archival professionals are hesitant to do. You know, the American Alliance of Museums has that statistic that they've been sort of talking about for a while of how museums are among the most trusted public institutions. And I think that that's great. And I think we can leverage that trust. But I also think that we do need to come to grips with the fact that a lot of that trust is built upon the fact that we don't cast ourselves as people. We cast ourselves as objective buildings where the truth happens, you know? Mm -hmm. And the idea of even forget the question of neutrality, um, when you're talking about archives, right? Let's say you receive a new donation and you're cataloging it, making a typo on something can mean that that object, that collection gets, I won't say lost, maybe that's not the right word, but I mean, archivists in any museum, I mean, even a small museum, they're working with hundreds of collections and then the bigger you get i mean at the museum of flight we have over three million objects and photos and our pieces of archival material like ac accidentally <laughs> saying one thing instead of the other can mean that a researcher uh, because we rely on finding aids and search engines like in specially built search engines to find these things so that comes back to the question of labeling right so if we have one of these collections of somebody 
um, for whom their the way they played with gender or the way they engaged with like sexual identity is was different from their contemporaries, but they lived before this time where we had a lot of this modern vocabulary. It becomes a very tricky question of how do you label it? So like we've talked about people like um, Amelia Earhart and Poncho Barnes. These are two aviators, uh, both of which in the LGBT community have some cachet. Um, from a truly historical standpoint, there is no evidence that Amelia Earhart would identify as any sort of specific LGBT identity. Same thing with Poncho Barnes, but both of them played with gender in a big way. Both of them wore men's clothing, and we, we lose that in the modern world. Like, you look at a picture of Amelia Earhart, and you're like, okay, she's dressed like a pilot, but, like, at the time, that was transgressive. Uh, but she was just doing it because it was what she wanted to wear. And then Poncho Barnes is an even more larger-than-life character who, when she posed for uh, her pilot's license photo, like, specifically, explicitly wanted to be as masculine presenting as possible. And even, actually, before becoming a pilot, lived as a man in Mexico to fight in the revolution. <laughs> like, this, this fascinating... Uh, larger than life story, but uh, I, I pause so much because it's so tricky. You want to make those stories available for the people so that if there's a researcher who's interested in like LGBT aviation, that they can type it in this in the archives and the finding aids and like find what they need to find. But you also need to respect the fact that these people we don't want to project things too much onto these people and kind of take them as they were and at face value. It's the crux of the issue right there. <laughs> yeah. Too bad they're not all still alive to just answer our questions. This is a little bit of a soapbox for me, honestly. I, when we think, when we talk about trans history, specifically trans history, I think a lot of people think of that as the history of people who called themselves transgender or transsexual or some other sort of historic precursor of our modern terminology, or people who we can very clearly look at and say, this person would have been trans if they lived today. But I actually think trans history is so much wider than that. I think trans history is the history of everyone who transgressed the gender boundaries of their time. And I think that to look at someone like Amelia Earhart or uh, Pancho Barnes and to say that they are a piece of trans history is going to ruffle some feathers because you're right. We don't have the historic evidence to say these people would call themselves trans if they lived today. But they did the very same thing that trans people today are doing, which is actively challenging the restrictions that society is placing on them based on their body based on how they were born, based on chromosomes, based on all of these, however you want to define it. And so I think that really when we talk about transhistory, we need to take a more sort of expansive view of the issue. Now that doesn't solve the issue of not being able to find these figures. It's almost like we need a search term that we can apply for just like gender transgressions that like we can just apply for anyone who like might fall into the umbrella. Because again, I don't want to say Amelia Earhart should be labeled as transgender, right? But we almost need some sort of terminology that captures this idea of 
gender transgression as a much wider envelope of historical discussion. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, a narrow definition of trans history is, you know, it's it's such an intellectual trap. You you find yourself uh, instantly on the defensive, uh, focusing on trying to prove in some way things that you can't prove, and uh, you just you really need to let it go and just sort of recognize there were there were acts that these people were doing that we we just knew for a fact happened. You know, there were items of dress, there were methods of 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 love and at the GLBT historical society, we, we have sort of, um, this is getting into the library weeds, but listeners might be familiar with the library of Congress subject headings at the beginning of a book, you'll open it up on the copyright page. There is a list of uh, terms that sort of describe what a book is about that were set down by a librarian somewhere from a preset list, uh, laid out by the library of Congress. And, at the GLBT Historical Society, we, we don't strictly use that to categorize the stories that we have in our archives, because although the Library of Congress subject headings are a living document, and in many ways they're evolving slowly um, to, to fit more contemporary terms, a lot of what they have is really dated. And a lot of what they have just also isn't suited to an expansive view of, for example, trans history. So, uh, you know, one example is that we, we do have that general term, you know, it, it, we use gender nonconformity. Um, we, we spoke to, um, to KJ Rawson, who is the administrator of the Digital Transgender Archive, an, an absolutely astonishing primary source resource, if you're not familiar with it, um, who suggested uh, in circumstances where there is a suggestive action, but we don't know, um, focus on the action and not on the identity of the person. Uh, and that way you can sort of describe something, put that antenna up for to start broadcasting to researchers that they might want to look at this, but you're not making a claim about someone's story. Uh, we were, we were, you mentioned, uh, mom Chung, uh, Dr. Margaret Chung, the, uh, who among other things, you know, a medical pioneer, a recruiter of, uh, pilots during the second world war, um, a really fascinating figure and this really fascinating, uh, thing about uh, Margaret Chung's career, which was really centered in at, at sort of the height of her career around this this image of femininity of of motherliness uh, that she projected very deliberately. But during medical school, uh, Margaret was was living as a man. You know, she was wearing men's clothing and uh, using the name Mike. We don't really know why, but you know, certainly there is gender nonconformity happening here, and we we need to have that. We need to be attuned to what we are learning from that and not assume that it was something that she did, for example, because she was the only woman in her graduating class and wanted to blend in better, which is the explanation I've often seen, um, in my opinion, a strange one. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's very difficult to talk about people under the broad transgender umbrella in history, uh, among other things, because... Uh, you know, there are often sort of competing claims um, on a person. You know, people want to see themselves in history. I want to see myself in history. I completely understand why, um, you know, if, if somebody was very butch, for example, if they were known to love women, um, and if, if they may have taken a masculine name, sometimes transmasculine people and uh, lesbians who, you know, 
it's it's a it's a group of folks. I mean, some some people identify as both transmasculine and lesbian. They're not necessarily in conflict, but you know, me and my lesbian friends might look at the same historical figure and say, I see myself in them. Then we might look at each other and say, but if I do, you know, how can you do we invalidate each other? And we've got to keep in mind that we, we don't really, you know, it's, we don't need to do a tug of war. We just need to talk about what people did and how they chose to live. Yeah. I think that it's, you raise a really good point there in terms of just how we sort of draw the lines between identities now versus how the lines between identities might have been drawn in the past, right? Like I think about sort of working at a psychology museum, right? I think a lot about the sort of medicalization of sort of queer identity and the ways in which so many of the distinctions that we had in the past were drawn differently in part because they were not drawn by members of the community. They were drawn by people Mm -hmm. who were doing things like diagnosis, right? And so you look at early terms that, uh, terms like inversion, for example, that's really sort of splitting the difference between sort of gender identity and sexual orientation. And there are folks who lived during, at the sort of turn of the 20th century, who proudly identified themselves as inverted, which is, you know, a horrific term to kind of use for a queer person today. But one, we have to acknowledge sort of the validity of that person's usage of the term for themselves, and also acknowledge that, no, we probably never will definitively say if that person was trans or gay, right? We can say that they belonged to an identity category within their time, And that doesn't erase the fact that it was queerness, that it was a historical sort of ancestor to all of these identities that we have today. But it does also still acknowledge that these are all ultimately social constructions that are drawn differently throughout society and culture as time passes and time evolves. And as you say, often laid down by medical professionals who are not part of these communities or who were, but in a a different peripheral way. Um, yeah, the, the history of, of queerness and transness as we now define those ideas is sort of a history of people on the ground interpreting and appropriating for themselves the categories that were imposed upon them, uh, turning something that was medicalized into something that was deeply personal, turning something that was meant to be very clinical into a matter of pride and something that they could make more complex uh, through embodying it. And uh, yeah, that's that's history, baby. That's why I love this stuff. Yep. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to throw the wrench in here then that everything you've talked about really requires nuance. And yet, as we talked about before, we referred to the fact that we know in museums, people don't read signs. <laughs> I mean, I, I love museums. I work in a museum. I don't necessarily read all the signs or even most of the signs. And the people who do read signs are going to read on average about five to 10 words, even if the sign is much longer than that. So how, how, (laughs) how to have these balanced kind of nuanced discussions that, because the context, I'm hearing that really context is, I hesitate to say King, you know, context is, uh, the monarch over all this, <laughs> to use the gender neutral term. Um, but uh, that's tough. I, I see your point, but and I still, I think that even if people are going to pass by your sign and not read it, I think that there is still power in doing the work. You know, if we, if we want to sort of cynically take this in a perspective of 
well, people will only read, say, two sentences that I write on each museum display, right? How do I get this into those two sentences? I do think that we, one, we discount our audiences. And two, I think that, you know, we dismiss the fact that even if the average reader does not read all of the context, having that context prepared helps to provide additional information for those who do care and who do get invested in this material when they go through the exhibit. And also, you know, I hear a lot of museum professionals talking about how their management is terrified of getting in trouble for making an assumption about queerness or bringing queerness into an exhibit, right? Getting this sort of backlash to LGBTQ representation. And you know what? Context is how you avoid that, right? Context is how you justify yourself. Context is, it it backs you up, right? It gives you that sort of shield to an extent. And so I think even if we do want to adopt the cynical, you know, position of people won't read all of this, or, you know, people might not get all of the context, even if you put it in front of them, you should still put it in front of them, right? We are creating the way that people perceive and interact museums in the future. Like this is a changing industry. And I think we can help push it in the direction of context being key to what we do. You know, and, and then of course, the wonderful thing about providing context is that it does, it leads to conversation and conversation takes over. Even if not everybody reads the text in a museum, somebody will, they'll talk to their friends about it. It'll make its way into a profile or a review of the exhibit in the paper that people will read. It, it still manages to uh, to spread itself out in the public discourse in unexpected ways. It, it's one of the things... Uh, I, I feel like I keep saying it's one of the things I love about being an archivist, but being an archivist is pretty great. So um, the, the fact that when I'm managing the reading room, which, uh, you know, if you haven't been to an archival reading room, it really is like a museum exhibit in which you determine what you look at and you get to touch everything and you get to peruse <laughs> it at your leisure. I really highly recommend if you've got historical interests, you know, you don't need to be an academic. You don't need to be an expert or have a book contract in hand. You can just come and look at things, uh, you know, most of the time. And uh, yeah, the then you'll, you'll see things, you'll make uh, these, these discoveries and as an archivist, I get to talk to people about their discoveries. They'll come up to me and say, oh, um, Isaac, uh, there is, um, I, I had a researcher. We have this wonderful, um, it's, it's hard to explain in contemporary terms uh, because it's so specifically of its time and place. But we have a satirical magazine about life with HIV and AIDS called Disease Pariah News. It's very blackly comic. It's very bitterly funny. And uh, a researcher came up to me and said, I, I found this, uh, this strange record um, in an issue of this that uh, I don't think has ever, it, it was made by this particular process that people did in the 90s where you could press a record cheaply. You know, it was, it was square. You could staple it into your zine and you could distribute music this way. Wow. Can, can we cut it out and, uh, and play it? And I said, well, I mean, it, it's it's this thing is meant to be used. It's not meant to be kept immaculate. So we have a record player. We put it in and we, we played the disease pariah news theme song, which predictably was very bleakly funny. Um, I will learn from my researchers expertise and they can learn from mine and we can explain things to each other. That's really, you know, like, like I said, nuance comes out in conversation and museums, you know, 
they are conversations between the public history and the curator and all of the other people who went into creating this moment. So you just hinted at Isaac, another challenge that faces people who want to tell these LGBT stories, and that's even finding them in the first place, right? So here, here's a, a record that was found that really people hadn't engaged with before. Uh, and Isaac, I know this is a story you know because you've been trying to help me with it, but there's uh, uh, an LGBT aviation story that I've been trying for over, what, a year or two now to, to try to get to the bottom of. And I think it just really interestingly illustrates the issue. So there's a book called Coming Out Under Fire. Highly recommend people read it, any listener. It's about the LGBTQ plus experience in World War II. Um, if you want a shortened version, I have a lecture that I've given that's based on this book and other research I've done that's only an hour long. If you don't read the book, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I think I even did it at the GLBT Historical Society. I can't quite remember. Uh, but there, in that book, there, there are two fleeting references to a person named William Johnson. And William Johnson is a pseudonym for a Tuskegee Airmen. And for those who don't know, the Tuskegee Airmen were black pilots who flew for the United States military during World War II. I've done an episode about them, or a few episodes about them in the past um, that people can go back and listen to for more information. But we get these two sentences in this giant book that hint at what the experience for LGBT members of the Tuskegee Airmen might have been like. And they're just barely mentions. They talk about a stockade, so like a literal cage that um, airmen who were suspected of or in the process of being convicted of being LGBT were kept in. And William Johnson recalls like walking up to see one of his friends who's in the cage and the friend says, go away because they're going to think you're one of us and you're going to end up in the cage. I've never heard about this before. So I go looking for the source, uh, Alan Barube, who wrote the book, his collection is at the GLBT Historical Society. I think this is how I found your museum initially, the archives, because there's an excellent, extensive oral histories. Like all the interviews that Alan did are in your collection. Most of them are digitized, so just anyone can read them. Uh, so we go looking for the one for William Johnson, and for some reason, it's not there. And then it turns out that William Johnson is a pseudonym. So that makes it more difficult to find out who this person was to see. It's not about exposing identities, by the way. I want to be clear. This is not about like finding out who William Johnson was so we can put their name out on display. And, you know, it's more about finding out the context for this. Um, so like I've reached out to the Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site and Park and been like, have you heard of this? Is there anything? And they're like, well, he chose a pseudonym well because we've got like six William Johnsons on our Tuskegee Airmen rolls. So even if, he, if even if that was his real name, you know, that's not helpful. And then I've reached out to authors and interest groups and, and no one's really heard of this. So it makes it kind of difficult to verify and, and speak. On, not that I think William Johnson lied, but when all you have is two sentences in a massive book and nothing really else to back it up, as a historian, it's difficult to speak with any authority on a topic like that, let alone begin asking more questions that go deeper. So that is the trick. I mean, a lot of times people in the past didn't talk about these things publicly or they use coded language, uh, things that might be hidden in plain sight. 
what are your thoughts on finding these stories in the first place and, and unearthing them, even if they're kind of hidden? Should sleeping dogs be left to lie? Should they be investigated? And then how how do we crack these codes of of the way people wrote and talked about things so that we can talk about them today? I think that the answer when trying to unearth a, a story that might honestly be buried forever, that might just sort of have become a part of the surrounding rock or the surrounding substance of history, such that it is pretty much invisible uh, to us today. One of my favorite soapboxes, and this is a very, very difficult issue, and uh, and yet I have a soapbox about it because that's the person that I am. Um <laughs> I think that sometimes regarding history as a matter of things to be proven and as a matter of facts does not always lend itself to doing queer history. Um, I think that we have often chosen a coded language. We have often destroyed our papers. We have often um, been subject to, uh, to, to the law, frankly, and to sort of that that kind of proof and that kind of facts, people being outed only when they are arrested, uh, you know, trans people only being outed when they are arrested or in the hospital dying. Uh, there is a long and terrible history of queer people and queer history only being exposed when we are involuntarily exposed. And so I, I think that sometimes it's it's more helpful to talk about queer history in terms of intuition, in terms of what we know we see, in terms of the imagination. I am also a fiction writer, uh, as well as an archivist. And, and one of the things that I've been doing for the last few years is writing historical fiction, because I have found that my day job has made me obsessed with these ways and these moments that we simply need to imagine our way into history, because the facts are not going to deliver. And uh, so I've been working on you know, an imagined queer uh, and trans history of the Gemini program that uh, is coming straight from my knowledge of queer and trans people and not at all from my knowledge of history. Um, where does that leave us in terms of actual historical research and not making things up? I do not know. I obviously don't think that we should let go of the idea of facts as the important way, as the main primary important way of doing history, right? I mean, once we start saying, you know, speculation is not just a legitimate way of doing history. It should be the central one. You know, we're, we're, we're lost. What do we have? What ground are we standing on? But I, I just think that there's a moment where we just sort of have to accept that it's not there and let our recognition that statistically a lot of historical people were queer and our knowledge of similar stories start to fill in the blanks in our minds so that we can continue to use what we have to broaden our understanding of human nature. And I think that imagined histories, like the book that you've just talked about working on, Isaac, are valid expressions of this, right? And I actually would even go as far as to argue that, you know, imagined histories should be given their place in spaces like museums with the qualification that they are imagined, right? I think yeah. that it is necessary for us to understand the gaps in the historical record. And again, you know, I keep going on and on about sort of context and sort of really making the process of history known to the non-historian who is walking into the space. But I do think that this is an important space or an important opportunity to do that, right? To talk about the gaps through the things that we have to imagine. 
So I, I love historical fiction for that reason. And I, it delights me that we are living in an era where a lot of authors are taking up sort of the lack of queer representation through fiction, right? I think, I think it's powerful. I think it's meaningful, right? And also in terms of when we're discussing known documented queer history or queer history that is documented, but maybe not to the degree that some would like it to be in order to sort of be able to state it as fact, right? I think that we can also talk about our own queer intuitions within these sort of legitimized spaces. I think we can acknowledge that something that is not inherently provably queer has resonance to the queer community today. And I think that's a way of asserting some sort of power onto the past and some level of agency uh, for the folks whose records were not adequately documented. Yeah, when, when we talk about that, we get into these kind of fascinating cases, like people like Josephine Baker. So Josephine Baker uh, is a black woman born in the U.S., um, pretty early on moved over to France and became uh, a dancer. And she's very well known for her, her dancing. Um, that That's kind of the cultural memory of her. People don't know that she was a pilot. And in fact, she, as this well-known dancer, she was a spy for the Free French. Not just the Free French, though. The Free French Air Force was where she actually was formally <laughs> doing her spy work for. And uh, because she was well known as a dancer, she would be invited into all these Nazi circles and she would listen and people didn't suspect her of being a spy. And so she was able to go back to the Free French Air Force and feed them information about what the Germans were planning. And she comes up in LGBT history because there's, uh, I mean, if you ask a lot of people, they, they would say that she was lesbian or sapphic. Um, but when you trace these stories back, I mean, I've even seen this claim on this on the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture on their website. And I've asked them, what is their source for this? Because when you trace things back, you end up all the sources lead back to one source, which was this guy who was one of her fans who wrote a, a, a biography of her. It was not a trained historian. You do not have to be a trained historian to write an authoritative biography. I want to be clear about that. Um, but it was, he was a very over-the-top, like sensationalizing person in his life. So it kind of calls into question. And, and he kind of made this offhanded remark that he she had relationships with women, didn't really qualify that in any way. So you get this challenge where kind of this mythology emerges about people that runs away from the facts a little bit and you need to contain them. Uh, but at the same time, as we've talked about before too, like the, the term queer can be a very intimidating term and an offensive term to some people. But like it, it can mean in the modern sense, it generally means anybody who's kind of bucked against whatever they're told is okay in terms of gender and expression and identity. And Josephine Baker, regardless of whatever her personal relationships might have been, because of the way she presented herself as bucking what was expected of a woman at the time, could very easily have this kind of label of queer added to her. I should point out, too, that um, she actually had a son who was gay, an adopted son, and she kicked him out. Um when when she found out this does not mean that she herself again 
did not have relationships with women. It, like it's it's just one of these unprovable things. People act in all sorts of different ways. Maybe one of the points that you made earlier is it's less helpful to maybe focus on the person and focus more on the action. I think in the case of Josephine Baker, I think talk when we talk about someone for whom such a major chunk, it sounds like, of the historical record does kind of come back to mythology, right? You know, I'm not sure how much this singular autobiography, it's not autobiography, this, I'm not sure how much this singular biography is cited, but it sounds from your description like there are probably, like this is probably not the only sort of wild claim made by this author that we don't necessarily have a proof of. And so that's where I think for me, it becomes a matter of telling the story of the mythology while acknowledging that it is mythology and placing this figure's queerness alongside the rest of that mythology. Like, I think that it is worth acknowledging in many contexts, but I also think that it, it is worth acknowledging alongside the other things that we don't necessarily know for sure, right? You know, I think... This kind of brings me in sort of a roundabout way to like one of the major issues that I have when people sort of brace themselves at the idea of interpreting sort of questionably queer history is this idea that there are so many assumptions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis about history. Now, this is not to say that history should be about assumptions entirely, but I do also think that we should be we shouldn't cast queerness as a special type of mythology or assumption, a mm. particularly, because I think then you run the risk of casting queerness as something that is shameful, right? Like that is particularly worthy of not being discussed, right? I think we need to align queerness with everything else that we talk about historical figures that maybe some of them might not have wanted us to know, right? I've been to historic house museums where folks have talked all about these sort of rumored affairs and rumored criminal activities of the folks who lived there, right? Whereas they're not necessarily willing, or many, many folks are not necessarily willing to do that same kind of digging and speculation in relation to queerness. So again, I'm not trying to say, you know, throw queerness onto whoever you want to, but I do <laughs> think that we do need to be careful not to like assign queerness its own specific category of sort of tiptoeing around, if that makes sense. This is what fascinates me also. I mean, I, I would just like to say, like, Tony, what you just said is incredibly smart. And like, I, I think that creating a special category for queerness that is treated differently from other aspects of a person's life um, is, is, is such an important thing to notice in ourselves and to head off at the pass. Um, but also, really, sometimes some historical figures are treated as too too sacred to talk about their potentially being queer, and uh, you know, which of course casts the idea of being queer as profane, and that's troubling. You know, we we should be able to speculate freely um, as long as we do not mistake our speculation for something that we have seen. On this question of like mythology, in fact if people aren't relating to the the queerness aspect of it it goes so far beyond this if you want some examples of this from space you should go back and listen to i did i think a two-part episode with teasel mule harmony from the national air and space museum wrote a book called operation Moonglow, which really dives into the history of apollo especially from a political perspective 
And it's so interesting. Like one of the things we talked about in that was that we, we see today JFK is this visionary space person. And, you know, he wanted to take us, lead us forward into space. But her research proves without a doubt that he was interested in space only so far as it got him elected, as it got him political cachet. If if the if the soup du jour had been dogs or, you know, drilling a hole to the core of the earth, he would have been like, yeah, we will get to the core of the earth in this decade. Like it, 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 he, he did not really care about space except as far as it could help him gain political cachet. And I feel like here is where like, I mean, historians can do the important work of stepping in and disproving the mythology, right? But I think that as historians, we also need to recognize that to a certain extent, though we are working with the facts, the work that we do is always going to be placed alongside mythology. We will always be working adjacent to mythology. And yes, we should do all that we can to differentiate those two things. But I don't think that we can't also accept that both of those things can exist, right? And I'm not saying museums should just, again, give up history in favor of mythology, but we can document the mythology that exists alongside the real history that we're telling. Among other things, because within the mythology, there, there's going to be some gold among the sand, you know, most mm -hmm. of the time. And, and also, of course, some of the most interesting history is history of mythology, which is why I am so thrilled to learn about this moon book. Oh, it's a great book. Yeah. Well, Tony and Isaac, thank you for joining me today on this really sweeping meta conversation on, on history and how we talk about it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I especially want to thank our donors. Your giving is what makes programs like this podcast possible, so thank you for your support. You'll find links to the stuff we referenced in this discussion, including the other episodes of the podcast, a link to Isaac's writing, and also a link to the American Alliance of Museums Transgender Inclusion Guidelines, which was a document that Tony was instrumental in creating. And you'll find all that in our show notes at museumofflight.org slash podcast. If you don't work in museums, you might not even have known that the American Alliance of Museums exists. But even if you're not a museum professional, if you want to peek behind the curtain, those guidelines are a great read to understand how museums are approaching this topic. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded us from. You can also share your thoughts and contact the show at podcast.museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>